0: Good afternoon, thanks for joining us. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks. We're discussing an issue of history today, the Holocaust, and how it relates to uh, politics today. And I'm joined by Professor Stephen T. Katz from Boston University, the Slater Professor of Holocaust Studies. Uh, Stephen, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Stephen, the, um, the, I want to talk first of all, because you're one of the founders, one of the creators, if you don't mind my saying, of Holocaust education in uh, in the United States in the post war period as we know it today so um, give us a thumbnail of what one what is the content of holocaust education today
1: well i would say first of all it's spread enormously all over the university world secondary education in a lot of states it's mandated so it's become a very widespread study it generally falls into two areas the most Uh, common I would think is historical studies where you get people teaching a course that begins somewhere in the 30s and goes to 1945 and tells people the historical experience. The second place that is very popular is in literature courses because people read uh, Elie Wiesel's work, Primo Levi's work, uh, various kinds of work by Anna Frank. So that's a place where a lot of students come into the subject in reading this kind of literature.
0: Now, does the, um, as it's presently construed, does Holocaust studies open the lens to a, an understanding of the philosophy that led to the Holocaust? Because obviously we all realize, hopefully, or most do, uh, the evils of anti-Semitism and the role that that played. Um, and that you know, this is a lesson that I, I think is the, generally the predominant one that emanates from the Holocaust studies. That not so much anti, not just anti Semitism, but bigotry and prejudice is bad, which is obvious. Of course, that's true. But does it open the lens to a look at what Nazism was as a belief system that led to that?
1: If it's well done, it does. It seems to me you couldn't possibly teach a course on the Holocaust and talk about the persecution of Jews, the murder of gypsies, Zagaina, the destruction of gays, without explaining what they were doing. This was not a thoughtless experiment, this was not random, this was not an accident, this was all done very carefully on a higher continent, was galvanized to pursue certain kinds of genocidal ends. So obviously the theory behind it, the Third Reich, the National Socialist agenda, is a crucial part of this conversation.
0: There's always though a piece missing from what I can tell from this study and to me it seems obvious and it seems like almost the elephant in the room but I very rarely have I heard it discussed and that is that really a lot of the infrastructure of the Holocaust and the 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 functioning of it emanated from Bolshevik Russia that in fact Lenin in 1917-18 he set up the a concentration camp system that was virtually emulated by the Nazis the gulag system He set up a national police force, the Cheka, which was emulated by the Nazis with the Gestapo. He had the Cheka go out and liquidate groups of people that were politically incorrect, as he said, people that were inconvenient to the advance of his radical socialist agenda. And um, Europeans were very aware of that, and they were very aware of the heinous nature of that regime, and being the most bloodthirsty in modern times at that point, and they also were aware of the fact that a lot, of the, a lot of the, sort of the, I guess you might say the liberal elite of the world turned their back on it and ignored it. In fact, they even praised it in many cases. And I, I don't think that that was lost on the Nazis. I think that it seems to me that, that a lot of what they did was inspired not only by that regime and what they did, Twenty. I mean, don't forget, Lenin had already slaughtered up to four million people before Hitler even joined the Nazi party. It was not only that they emulated it, but they also were encouraged by the fact that this was given a green light in most circles, that they got away with it, that they were seen as, quote, progressive.
1: I'm not sure that I would agree with the fact that they were seen as progressive, but there's no question that uh, people were watching each other. Hitler kept a close eye on the Soviet Union. He knew what was happening there. His primary enemies were the communists, which he railed against in Mein Kampf. He knew all about the ideology of uh, Leninism, but I'm not sure that the uh, failure of the European liberals to defeat or to intervene was the reason that Hitler was able to move forward. I think they moved forward because the European liberals didn't intervene against Nazism for their own reasons. That is to say, Europe was weak, World War I had come and left a tremendous crater in the demographic community, the number of deaths, the economic situation was desperate, the inflation of the 1920s that the German state further encouraged so that when they paid reparations they would pay less money back. America was in the throes of isolationism, remember Wilson Tried to get America to join the League of Nations, which was his idea, mm-hmm. and then the United Nations, uh, the League of Nations, went forward without America. Right. Uh, Britain had cut dramatically its economic support for military hardware, so it was a whole concatenation of various phenomena. I'm not sure that it was the failure of liberals and socialism that I would put at the top of the list. Well, I
0: mean, obviously it's a very complex subject, and I'm no, I don't mean to in any way simplify it and right. try to capsulize one thing. I just, I bring this up because I think it's the one thing that's n- not part of the firmament when we discuss it. I mean, everything you said is true, all of it important, and your research is totally right, and I respect it immensely, but I think that that the one missing piece of the puzzle to my way of thinking was the Bolshevik influence. Now, Hitler in Mein Kampf... <clears throat> he, he said that as a young man his first political influence was Marxism. He, he, according to his own autobiography, as a young uh, bohemian in, in, uh, Ven- in uh, Vienna, he immersed himself in Marxism for a full year and studied all of its aspects. And um, I think that there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that that they were, that he was very socialistic. I mean, that- Well, it, that, he
1: called himself National Socialism.
0: And, in, and if, and if someone knows the German language, they know that the emphasis on that title right. is socialism. Yes, yeah, socialism. And uh, that if you look at the, the Nazi party in its early stages with its, its bill of particulars, it reads like a communist manifesto. It's a,
1: you know- well, it's redistributive. It's a different kind of- right. I think though you have to be careful for one reason. Nazism is a racial theory. and it reconstructs the state on the grounds of race. Socialism is an economic theory built on class. And therefore, the fundamental structure of the communist state, (coughs) besides its uh, apparatus of terror, obviously an apparatus of terror will always have police units. It will always have secret police. It will always have concentration camps. It will always have all kinds of violence. So you have to get past that to really look at the comparisons between these two regimes.
0: I think that the, <coughs> I mean, obviously the focus on, on um, the, the communist focus is on people who are not politically correct. I mean, that's why communist China, even to this day, <coughs> executes an average of, according to Amnesty International, an average of 50,000 people a year. Not for crimes, right. not for violence, but because they said, they, they said things or they, they spoke for things that run contrary to the state. Um, And whether it be people who are deemed politically incorrect because they're standing in the way of of the political ideal, the socialistic, utopian idea, or whether it be based on race. I mean, I think that that's an, an important distinction, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, it's still a system of utopian socialism. This idea that to remove the people who are deemed as enemies of the state whether it be based on race or whether it be based on the people, on, on class or, or political orientation, they are, they are still systems that I would I think have a lot more in common. Now I think that the Nazi movement was a left movement. Um, I think the only reason why we can refer to Nazism as on the right, the only real reason in, in the real sense, is because it was to the right of Stalin. I mean, when Hitler and Stalin, who were, who were allied and who both launched World War II together in the Hitler-Nazi-Hitler the, 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 Hitler pact. pact, Hitler double-crossed Stalin by Operation Barbarossa about two years later by invading Russia. It was at that point that Stalin began a campaign of referring to Nazism as right-wing and reactionary. But I think up until that point, certainly the hardcore left and the communist left and their close coterie of followers viewed Nazism as progressive, and they outright supported it during well, the uh, Hitler-Stalin w- With
1: Peter. respect, I would say that's a misreading. You have to remember, in the 30s, the main enemy of National Socialism, and this goes back to Mein Kampf, uh, was the left in Germany, and the first uh, concentration camps in Germany, Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, that were created after the Reichstag fire were created to incarcerate communists and to dismantle the left in Germany. The difference between the left and the right here is a little bit complicated. I think the reason that the Nazis are not a left movement is their economic project is not a socialist project. If you look at the support that they received from the industrialists in Germany, And if you look at the fact of the way they treated labor, and if you look at the way they tried to stabilize payments of salaries during the war, and they did not confiscate. So I think you have to really be careful. Usually in European culture, the definitive fact of the left and right had to do with economic policy. And that was certainly a difference between Germany. The Hitler-Stalin pact with Molotov signed in August of 39 was a pact of convenience. That is to say, they each had their agenda. Stalin had an agenda that he had decapitated the Russian army. And he had no generals left. He had hardly any officers left. He mm-hmm. was absolutely unprepared. And you see when the war begins, he's unprepared. Because the Russian army takes five million prisoners of war within six months or eight months. Right. On the other hand, the Germans have a very clear awareness that if they fight on two fronts, they're going to be in deep trouble, because they credited the Russian army with more staying power than it actually had. So they thought that if they move against Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, at the same time that they're going to move against France and Belgium and Britain eventually, they're going to be in a difficult place. So the strategy was not based on an ideological sympathy, it was based on a pragmatic calculation that better we fight one side, win that war, turn to the other side, fight that war, in a pos- from a position of strength, so right. and,
0: and I think that also germany and, and and Russia had a tacit alliance going back to Walter Rathenau in the 1920s, and that they were they kind of you know publicly were opposed to each other, but there's evidence that that the Russians are actually helping Germany arm themselves and they actually helped Hitler come to power. but we have well, a caller hello you're, you're with us thanks for joining evening. us. Go ahead.
1: i have a comment and my comment is this
0: any state system or ideology that fails to recognize the rights the worth, and the dignity of human beings
1: that system and all state is obsolete i'm sorry i didn't understand i I, I didn't
0: totally get that but i think he was asking about um and correct me if i'm wrong the the system that most respects the rights of the workers. And I think this gets into, you know, one of my thesis here, which is that, um, as I said, Nazism is not as far to the left as communism, which is total right. state control. But, you know, instead it forms what Mussolini started, who was started out as a Bolshevik supporter and a communist, who uh, developed what he called the third way, right, which was he recognized that, and this could go back to Marx's Communist Manifesto, where he told communists to develop systems in their own states that would be amicable to the realities on the ground as a way, as a halfway step toward the ultimate goal. So he recognized that the Italians were, first of all, they were very Catholic, and secondly, that they were small business owners, that communism would not function right away there. So he developed a, a midpoint, fascism. Well, uh, and fascism developed a system by which certain corporations and, and industrialists would become a part of the government. Right. They had called the Council of Corporations. Hitler em, emulated that by bringing monopolistic, certain monopolistic companies like Krop and others into his government, and he gave them monopolistic powers in, in exchange for their support of the government. But that's not, but that's, I would argue, that's that's a, a move to the left. I mean, that's not free market capitalism.
1: No, but you have, there's a lot of things other than free market capitalism that aren't socialism. That is a socialism is you take over the Krups and the Siemens and the Volkswagens and you'd redistribute the income and you control the means of production, according to Marxist theory. Right. None of that happened in national socialism. National socialism's economic policy was not redistributive in that way it did not it was self-interested and it believed in the what we would call the unification of all of these things under state control but that was a different kind of policy because these companies still worked at a profit and these companies still produced goods and services for contractual profit wages and their workers were paid according to a certain set scale certainly it was limited by the government but they were not socialized in the same way So one has to be a little cautious in the way you compare the different kinds of economic structures, political structures. And fascism in Italy was a third complicated. In Italy also, the communists were very strong uh, eventually, but uh, as nothing works in Italy, socialism didn't work in Italy either. So that's a special situation. I guess that my, my, my
0: thesis here though is that by giving, by welcoming in certain businesses into the government. It was the step toward what the communist ideal is, which is that the government becomes the corporation. There's only one, I mean, one of the first things Lenin did was abolish unions, and he abolished private corporations. The whole country became one big union, one big corporation. Germany, Italy, these countries weren't ready for that. The people weren't, would not accept that. So it was a move to the left, but it wasn't as far to the left as an outright state control. But when you say that it wasn't redistributist, I would take issue with that in that Nazi Germany was very much what we might today functionally call a nanny state. A what? A nanny state. Nanny state. state. It was very redistributist. I mean, there was the rise of the welfare state, which actually started under Bismarck and the Prussians, but there was also the, the national education, the national health care, the national um, you know, the Hitler Youth Movement and the education, you know, everything became nationalized, national police. This is a move toward a, a socialistic system, and it was a move away from, it was the most radical socialist regime
1: Hitler, Germany had ever had, um, well, it was but it wasn't
0: communist, so that's why... It was why
1: certainly state-controlled. The right. state was controlling, but that's a different matter. State control, per se, is not socialism. And as long as there were independent corporations with profits, and they showed profits on their books, and they made contracts for specific economic arrangements. They would, the government would buy things from them, the government would provide them with various kinds of support because of what they bought. In other words, their purchases, it was not uh, a socialist system that they had. Now what it would have evolved in into in 100 years or 50 years or 30 years, I can't say. Sure. But under the conditions of the low 30s and then the conditions of war, one has to be a little cautious.
0: Right. I mean, I just, the way I see it was that it was a move towards socialism. Obviously, they didn't achieve the Bolshevik, Soviet style because Germany was not that. Very far, right. But it was certainly the most radical, you know, socialistic government that Germany had ever experienced. And I think that that needs to be understood because then we can understand more a little bit the lessons of of the Holocaust. Um, You know, I don't think that, I think it needs to be understood in that context. As I mentioned, I mean, you you know, communist regimes have been involved with with far worse in terms of the numbers, the sheer numbers of of, of killings of of people who oppose the regime, whether it be based on race or class or or political agendas. And I think that it's all part of a general philosophical route. I think it does go back to
1: Marx. It goes back to the French Revolution. Well, I'm not sure, you know, you have to be careful people misuse uh, all of this evidence the fact is marx was a man of ideas he sat in the british library and he wrote his books right i don't think he and he thought of himself as a political liberal and he thought of himself as a humanitarian and if you look at the 1844 manuscripts and the 1848 the young what are called the young manuscripts you see that he's involved in a debate about making a more liberal society And the objective of Marxism is actually to create fairness. The whole object of the exercise is not economic in the ultimate sense. Economics is a subordinate condition that creates fairness. What Marx is saying is that the workers are being exploited, and therefore you have to create different mechanisms so that the worker is treated more fairly, and there won't be people who are bosses, and there won't be people who are serfs. So the whole enterprise of Marxism and its theoretical construct in the 19th century is a move towards social justice. Now, what happens to it as a political movement when it gets tied up with Leninism and Stalinism and Bolshevism and Chinese communism and Che Guevara and uh, Venezuela and uh, Mm -hmm. so on? That's another matter. So I think one has to be careful. I, I don't want to... Exonerate Marx completely, but I think you'd be very hard pressed to read Marx and generate death camps. He also authored a pamphlet at that
0: in 1846 or 1847 called "On the Jewish Question." 1844, on the Judenfrage, which was republished as "A World Without Jews."
1: Yes, that's a very,
0: very, very anti-Jewish publication. But if you look at that publication, and it was very popular in left circles right up to oh, World War II. Oh, it's been popular even till today. Well, it sort of became out of fashion after, after Hitler. But it, 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 the basic premise of that was that, first of all, the, the idea of private ownership was a false consciousness that that's was created right. by exploiters. That was the conspiracy theory underlying it. But secondly, he points out that it was the Jews who did this, and that the Jews, Judaism had to be eliminated in yes. order to create, move the world more toward this utopian idea where you have
1: absolute equality. Well, remember, the Judenfrage is a question of anti-Semitism. What he's discussing in the Judenfrage is a question that was being hotly debated in circles in Germany among Hegel students, namely, how can we eliminate anti-Semitism and what rights should we give Jews politically in a new Europe? Because remember, Jews had never had rights before. So When the ghetto walls came down, the French Revolution came, the liberalization of all these states gave Jews rights, the question was, is this a good idea? And should the Jews respond in some way so that the emancipation of the Jews will be two-sided? The Europeans will liberate the Jews from their political disabilities, living in ghettos and so on, and the Jews will liberate themselves from their Judaism. Marx's Judenfrage is an expression of the second. Namely, that Judaism creates anti-Semitism and that the reason for it is their economic, their peculiar economic role. And to overcome anti-Semitism, therefore, the Jews have to stop being Jews. So Judaism is the target of the pamphlet, but the objective is to create a society without anti-Semitism. It's not a desire to create Jews going to death camps. He specifically refers to... Um
0: I, in that pamphlet, refers to Jews as hucksters. Yes, yeah, so ugly, well, but, I say, very, no, but very the ugly. the point is that it's more than, it's it's ugly, sure, but there's there's, there's something underlying that. In other words, he was saying that this, they invented, basically, and, and he's, he refers to it as a false consciousness, this idea of self-interest, huckstering, and that they worship what he calls the money. god of money. Yeah, Moloch. Now, now, now the point is that that, that is, saying that in order to eliminate those ideas, which would lead to this absolute ant colony that he fantasized about, you had to remove such things as what he called huckstering, what right. we in this country call free trade, of goods and services. Capitalism, and he thought that Money, which right. is an abstract means of exchange, right. and self-interest, which is the individual's right to, to uh, to be free and to know who they are. That's right. And he felt that by remove that since the Jews invented these ideas, because these ideas in his world were false and they were created by exploiters, that Judaism would have to be removed. He, he went on in that pamphlet to say that Judaism had corrupted Europe, Christianity, and the United States. And we, he published articles in the United States. I agree uh, with you, Jeff. That, that, that introduced
1: this. I agree with you. But his subju- his problem and his solution was not to murder the Jews. His solution was to murder Judaism, which is it's a very, very big very, thing. It's
0: very close, though.
1: Well, it's not, one is a kind of a project of assimilation and acculturation,
0: and in, and he did use language like he, that. Judaism would have
1: to be utterly annihilated. But Judaism, he was against Judaism. So, for example, he said, when Christians cap- are capitalists, they're Jews. So they also are tainted by the same dilemma. In other words, the enemy is capitalism. And where you have capitalism, you have corruption and destructive behavior. If you want to eliminate destructive behavior, you eliminate this Judaism, which is its root. But that's very, very different than arguing that you are going to murder the people who are representative of that position. What you're going to do, and this is why I said before, class is different than race. In race, you can't change a person's genes. Right. In class, you can re-educate. In other words, that was a word popular in communist Russia also. And popular in China, and popular with Marx. You're going to remake the consciousness of the people who are now, as you say, have false consciousness. Who now exploit, who are now parasitic, who now belong to a class that takes advantage of their economic situation. But that's a different thing. One has to be very cautious here, not to confuse. You know, you have to be very careful not to confuse Marxism, which you may disapprove of, and for historic reasons deserves to be disapproved of. It's caused an enormous amount of violence and terror and other things. But it's not the sole cause of all that terror. Other things intervene into the communist manifesto, you might say, to produce the outcome, which is the totalitarian outcome. The totalitarian imagination, the totalitarian drive politically, is not commensurate one for one with the Marxist position. And therefore, you can have social democrats, and you can have non-social democrats, non-democratic mm-hmm. socialists. Right. You can have uh, people who advance, advocate for Marxism and have distributive, redistributive projects, and you can have people like Stalinism who build the gulag. So it's very different.
0: First of all, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that Marx invented anti-Semitism. No, I mean, no it goes, he certainly didn't. It goes back to Haman. I mean, uh, you know, no, this no, is,
1: anti-Semitism is an old story.
0: But he gave it a scientific loss in modern times. Yes, he gave by, it a, a philosophical
1: putting, explanation. And right. he
0: gave it a certain legitimacy yes, in that...
1: absolutely right. That's why the left has always been anti-Jewish, by and large.
0: Uh, uh, but, the, but where I, I, I might differ with you a bit is that by giving it that scientific loss... And by, by saying that Judaism has to be eliminated, what happens when the Jew doesn't want to go away?
1: Well, you, you see, but the point is, it's not the individual Jew. Remember, Or the Marx, Jewish people. Marx is talking about structures, and he's talking about society as a whole. So what he's talking about is revolutionary changes in the whole of society, the ownership of the means of production. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. We've got some um, public service
0: announcements coming up. Good. And... Uh, We'll pick up this thread. When Are these Marxist back?
1: announcements? <laughs> I don't know.
0: They might be. They, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll roll with that when we come back. Um, although I still see. That.